You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. Coming to you from the heart of Texas, this is Accounting Matters, the go-to podcast for accounting and finance professionals from your friends at Embark. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm Nicole Harger, Embark's National Quality Senior Director. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. And before we introduce today's guest, I did want to mention that the month of August was our podcast most successful month so we couldn't have done it without you our listeners yeah very exciting appreciate that everyone uh joining us in all of our conversations and uh maybe just another plug if you haven't had a chance to yet to rate review and subscribe to future episodes we'd love to have you continue to listen in yeah um so today we have the pleasure of welcoming robbie sunberg a managing director that oversees our esg and sustainability services Robbie, welcome. Thank you. Happy Long to time be here. no see. Yeah. Um, so I think it's fair to say that the ESG reporting landscape is heating up across the world. 2022 was a pivotal year for ESG reporting where we witnessed substantial transformation. Major proposals were put forth by the European, European Union, by the SEC in the United States, and the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, um, was full steam ahead on creating their reporting standards. Among these, the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, also known as CSRD, emerged as a key focal point. While companies, especially those in the US, eagerly awaited the finalization of the SEC proposal and the adoption of the IFRS Sustainability Disclosure Standards, The CSRD introduced extensive sustainability reporting requirements with global implications, which brings me to our conversation for today, where we will break down many of the key elements of the directive, as well as its accompanying reporting standards, the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, or ESRS. It's a mouthful. Yes, clearly. (laughs) Um, Adam, let me turn the conversation over to you first. Sure. Maybe to help provide some context to our listeners who are getting up to speed on CSRD. Can you talk about the origins a bit and where we are at today? Yeah, glad to. And and frankly, I think a lot of uh, reporting entities are quickly trying to grasp at all the all the changes happening around the um, sustainability reporting landscape, as you mentioned. And CSRD is is no small beast in its own making. So, uh, just for some context, so the CSRD was really driven by kind of Europeans' version of their Green Deal. So it was a December 2019 package of policies that were essentially designed to create um, climate neutrality for the European Union by 2050 and also help, you know, kind of just protect Europe's natural habitat. Um, The CSRD was intended to help change kind of companies' behaviors and really bring sustainability reporting on par with that of financial reporting, which all of us are very familiar with. Um, And it was doing this by mandating a number of disclosure topics. And for the CSRD, it kind of runs the full gamut. So it covers environmental, social, and governance topics. And I think if people are familiar with some of the existing regulations, there was already a non-financial reporting directive, the NFRD in the EU, that covered some of these items. But you know, if you, you kind of peel back the layers of the CSRD, you'll see that the requirements are like significantly expanded. Um, and as far as where we're at today with CSRD is, so the 
directive went into effect at the beginning of this year, so January 5th of 2023. And so from there, where we're at now is that all the EU member states, so all the parties that are um, subject to the European Union, they have essentially 18 months to then transpose the CSRD into their own national law. So really, we're looking at kind of a July 2024 deadline for all those EU member states to move this into national law. Um, and then I will add, you know, as part of that transposition process is that the directive really only sets the baseline for what the member states have to abide by. So in other words, they can do no less than what the CSRD outlines, but each member state has the ability to add their own jurisdictional provisions um, in addition to the requirements of the CSRD. So it'll be something we'll definitely have to watch as each of these member states kind of move forward with finalizing their adoption of the CSRD into national law, whether or not they add any incremental requirements. So do you actually have any updates on what member states are doing or the status of their efforts to apply CSRD? Uh, not a ton. I think, you know, we, we've seen and, and, you know, what I've read and you kind of hear updates here and there that there are several that are moving with the transposition process. So they're starting to go through the CSRD and, and transpose that into their national law. So you'll, you've seen some countries out there like create public consultations, um, where they're looking for input from just different stakeholders, um, looking at kind of the draft CSRD legislation and, and making sure that, you know, is there anything here that we need to consider that isn't already outlined in this directive? Um, but I think, you know, like I mentioned, whether or not some of these member states make changes or not, I think is still unclear. So I think, you know, best practice is if, you know, you, you listen to this podcast, you're reporting anything, you may be subject to some of this guidance. If you particularly have implications in several EU, you know, member state locations, um, to follow closely because there, you know, maybe there could be discrete differences between certain member states than others. Uh, but, you know, time will tell. So I know we'll get into more specifics around the ESRS in our conversation today, but can you also walk us through how we got to where we stand with those reporting standards? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So I think it's important to different, I mean, we've already probably thrown out like 30 acronyms and that's like <laughs> what we've talked about so far, but it is important to differentiate between the CSRD and the ESRS. So the ESRSs actually help explain what needs to be reported on. So it's talking about the disclosures that are required to be reported on. And this includes a full spectrum of sustainability topics, right? So you got climate change, biodiversity, ecosystems, working conditions, workforce, human rights, business ethics, to just name a few. Um, the original ESRSs were actually drafted by the European Financial Reporting Advisory Group, or EFRAG. Um, and people might be familiar with EFRAG because that's the kind of the advisory group that historically has advised the European Commission when they originally adopted the IFRS standards, so the accounting standards that uh, most of the EU member states use. Um, so last November, FRAG submitted their first draft of the ESRSs for review. There was a very long consultation process, as you can imagine, feedback period with the public, very, you know, like most sustainability reporting um, regulations and things like that. There's a lot of people that tend to weigh in and a lot of opinions raised. But what ultimately led to was that the European Commission adopted the final ESRSs this past summer. So the end of July, they adopted the final standards. Um, and I will say as part of adopting those final standards, they did actually make some um, 
changes and, and, and amended certain things to provide a few more accommodations from the original draft from FRAG. Um, but those now those standards are now just kind of waiting for final approval. That was uh, my next question. I guess, can you talk a little bit about where the standards are and are they final? I know you said they're waiting. So. Yeah, so they're not. So right now we're, at least at the time of this recording, um, you know, things move very quickly in this space. So uh, I want to at least caveat that. But at the time <laughs> of this recording, those standards are now basically before the European Parliament um, and the Council of the European Union. So they'll they'll review those standards, um, assuming all goes well, you know, they'll essentially move them into effect. And and one thing that's different between kind of the CSRD and the ESRS is, is for CSRD, all the member you know states are more or less transposing that into their um, national law. Um, the ESRSs are essentially effective once they're approved by the um, the European Parliament, and they're essentially published in the Office uh, Journal of the European Union. Okay, so that's some helpful background, Robbie. I'm going to turn the conversation over to okay. you. So I, I think the next thing companies wondering if they are impacted by this are asking is, how do I determine who's in scope here? Can you elaborate a little bit on how scoping works and which companies it affects? Uh, great question. Um, I think uh, it's important to understand the scope provisions of the CSRD are intentionally meant to be broad in order to apply to many companies operating in the EU. Uh, some early estimates suggest that over 50,000 companies, so hu a huge number, are likely <laughs> to be impacted. For many companies with complex organizational structures, the scoping exercise for CSRD is critical. A company will need to consider applicability uh, at multiple levels uh, within its organization to ensure all reporting obligations are identified. Uh, so this is really complex. Uh, and these complexities could grow um, as well if there are jurisdictional differences in how CSRD is transposed across member states. So kind of going back to, to what Adam was, was referring to earlier. Uh, really, in general, uh, entities in the scope of CSRD really fall into three distinct categories. Uh, so the first um, is all companies with securities listed uh, on an EU regulated market. Uh, the second uh, is large EU companies that are not listed. Um, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, and then uh, not the third kind of category there is non-EU parent companies. Okay, so you probably know where my next question is going. Yeah. I want to unpack each of these just briefly and maybe give an example on how a U.S.-based company could meet one of those three categories. Um, starting with companies with securities listed on an EU-regulated market, what do we need to know here? Yeah, so reporting will be required for entities with debt or equity securities that are listed on an EU-regulated market. And that's true regardless of whether they're an EU entity or a non-EU entity. Uh, there are some limited exceptions uh, to the listed company's reporting requirements uh, in, in those situations. So one exception uh, is afforded to entities, for example, that are deemed micro undertakings. Um, and so uh, an example here would be a US-based company uh, that has a, has a small, a medium, or a large-sized EU subsidiary. Um, so in other words, one of those micro undertakings yep. that we talked about um, with listed debt on an EU-regulated market. Okay, so you used the word large earlier when describing the second category of in-scope entities. Can you explain who qualifies as a large EU company that is not listed? Yeah, so uh, an EU entity, <laughs> um, and that includes an EU subsidiary of a US headquartered company, yep. uh, will be required to report if it is a talking about a large undertaking, and, and a large undertaking uh, is defined in the rules as meeting or exceeding at least two of three metrics. Um, 
on two consecutive annual balance sheet dates. And so those three metrics um, that it refers to, uh, first is total assets. So if total assets are uh, 20 million uh, or greater, uh, or 20 million euros, I should clarify <laughs> there, 20 million euros. And so you know, as of July this year, that kind of equates to $22 million US okay. dollars. Um, the second is around net turnover. Um, and so that's revenue kind of in, um, U.S. parlance um, <laughs> uh, of, of 40 million euros um, and then an average of 250 employees. So consolidated reporting will be required for an EU entity, um, again, including an EU holding company or, or EU intermediary holding entity, um, if it is a parent undertaking of a large group. Um, and so um, that's defined as a group consisting of a parent and a subsidiary entity that on a consolidated basis exceed at least two of three metrics. Kind of going back to yeah. uh, the two of three. Um, so again, the total assets are 20, 20 million euros. Again, the net turnover, the, the revenue of 40 million euros. And again, that average of 250 employees. And so uh, the subsidiary entities considered in the calculation would include all subsidiaries of the EU parent even if those established, even for those established outside the EU. Um, and there may be, um, or this may be particularly relevant uh, for EU holding companies established for, for tax purposes uh, that may not have their own operations. And so this becomes really complex um, and really becomes an exercise in looking at the, the legal structure and the organizational structure of organizations and how they file taxes and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, it sounds like uh, quite a big undertaking there, right? Yeah. Um, no pun intended, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's move on to the third quarter category, non-EU parent companies. Can you explain a little bit more there? Yeah. So this, uh, so this last category um, relates to consolidated parent level reporting under the directive for, for non-EU parent companies. Uh, so in other words, a US-based global parent um, is what we're talking about here. Um, and in, an ultimate non-EU parent company is in the scope of CSRD if it has, and this is, we're kind of moving a little bit away from the two of three, um, not quite the same, but um, you know, really a, an ultimate non-EU parent company is in scope of CSRD if it has substantial activity in the EU. Um, and kind of substantial activity here really means you know it's generated uh, revenue greater than 150 million euros um, in the EU for the last two consecutive years. Um, and then the second criteria there is you know at least one EU subsidiary that meets the other categories of scoping of CSRD. And so we just talked about we just talked about those. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the other category there is, is one branch. Um, so in general, that really just means a physical presence, but um, that also generated net turnover greater than 40 million, uh, in this case, uh, of revenue in the preceding financial year. Okay, so what do you mean by branch? Yeah, so the CSRD doesn't define branch um, for purposes <laughs> of determining <laughs> whether reporting is required at the global consolidated level. Um, so similarly, there are no definitions that exist in other EU regulations that would um, that would give us a clue either in terms of what that means. Mm -hmm. um, so in making judgments here, companies really should consider whether a location is economically independent um, from its parents and registered locally uh, in terms of making that, that determination. So uh, there may be clarification provided um, 
on the assessment when the CSRD is transposed into uh, national law in each of the, the EU member states. Um, but that said, uh, the assessment of whether a company has a branch is only relevant if the, the non-EU parent company does not have a subsidiary in scope of reporting. Uh, so there are large companies or entities with equity debt listed on, on an EU regulated market. Okay. So Adam, switching back over to you. Okay. Um, I want to ask about some practical application matters. Starting with any exemptions or exceptions to reporting, does CSRD outline anything here? Yeah, they, they provide a couple, which um, I think is good because we just kind of talked through the complexity of scoping all the different entities that in a very large uh, multinational structure could ultimately create a lot of reporting obligations. Um, so there's a couple of exemptions that are outlined in the directive. So the first one's known as the group exemption, which basically says more or less if an EU parent makes available sustainability reporting, and that's in accordance with obviously the full ESRSs, that includes the entire group, then all any, like if there happen to be any in-scope subsidiaries below that parent level, they would be exempt from having to provide their own separate standalone kind of sustainability reporting. Uh, one caveat there is that that group exep exemption does not apply to subsidiaries under the general scoping that are considered large public interest entities that have securities listed on EU regulated markets. But outside of that, if the EU parent is going to kind of do full disclosure obligations under ESRS, um, any that, you know, kind of standalone entities that would have had their own re reporting requirement would be exempt. So create a little uh efficiency there if you want uh, the next one is the non-eu parent exemption so this one if a non-eu parent has multiple subsidiaries in the eu that meet the general scoping then until 2030 uh, one of those eu subsidiaries could be used as kind of a a representative of the of the parent itself so the generally it's going to fall in the one that has the greatest number of revenue um, and you can essentially include all of the subsidiaries that are in scope and create almost this kind of artificial consolidation and do kind of like an artificially consolidated EU report. Um, so again, it just just allows some exemptions if you've got, you know, you happen to have like six different legal entities in different jurisdictions within the EU that all would have met their own, you know, criteria for for reporting under, let's say, the large company scoping. Instead of having to do six individual sustainability reports, you have the option to create kind of a artificial consolidated report. Okay. So if you don't fall into some of those scoping requirements, is it fair to say you are safe from CSRD? It's kind of a loaded question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from a reporting obligation, I would say yes. I mean, you know, if maybe you didn't trip a threshold, like you have like presence in the EU, it's obviously something you have to monitor, right? And make sure that at some point you don't you have don't. Yep. an obligation there. But if you are completely removed from the EU, you're a reporting entity, um, you know, you you are likely, I guess you can say the word safe. I don't know if that's the right way to characterize <laughs> it. But, uh, but keep in mind, you know, like as part of uh, with a lot of sustainability reporting, you know, there's a lot of other companies that tend to get, get pulled into some of the requirements. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, CSRD, the ESRS is in, and, and a number of other like sustainability reporting proposals and rules that are out there um, kind of have full kind of value chain reporting requirements. And right. so what tends to happen is there is a need for 
companies, you know, particularly with CSRD, where they may be requesting of other companies to provide data or information in order for them to meet their reporting obligations. So if you're a, you know, a key supplier to a company in the scope of CSRD, you know, you could see yourself being Chances asked for are, things yep. that maybe you weren't tracking, or maybe it becomes a condition of doing business with that company going forward. Um, so there's, there's a number of other ways people can be called on to help support the efforts that companies going through these reporting exercises um, they'll have to do. So, you know, like I said, you're not necessarily off the hook completely in, in all cases. Um, and then I will just add, like, if you meet the scoping guidance, so a company that meets the scoping guidance, you know, you continue to obviously report according to the, the directive itself. And really, if you kind of fall outside one of those thresholds, so let's say like, you know, your revenue takes a tumble or something and you no longer meet some of the the uh, large company thresholds that you actually have to fall out of that threshold for two consecutive years to really kind of be kind of exempt from the reporting obligation. So it's not, you know, it doesn't allow for just like a one year anomaly. (laughs) That makes sense. So um, what happens if a company fails to comply with CSRD? Are there consequences to that? Slap on the wrist. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, So yeah, there's penalties for non-compliance, but you know, or we expect penalties for non-compliance. Um, the thing here is that it's it's similar to like, you know, the member states transposing this into their national laws. As part of transposing that into national law, they will all probably, um, you know, create their own penalties for non-compliance. So it could vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, so that's from more of like a, a legal regulatory side. But then I would also say like companies that fail to comply or report or whatever, you know, there could also be kind of intangible reputational impacts or things like that. You know, if you've got competitors that are going to call you out for certain things, if you're not reporting and they are or customers or suppliers or whoever, you know, other stakeholders that are um, kind of invested in this reporting, um, you know, your failure to do so could, could have consequences like from them. So I know we haven't even begun to discuss Um, the reporting standards themselves. You know, we already have so much to take into account. For companies who may be impacted, what does the timeline for reporting look like, Adam? For CSRD, there's uh, there's not a lot of time for some companies. Um, So it's, you know, it's it's something that companies really need to start evaluating and and getting ahead of. So um, there is a phased in approach for kind of how companies get drawn into the directive and when they need to start reporting. So the first wave of companies are actually going to be reporting on uh, 2024 information in 2025. So not that far off. So that's going to be large public interest entities that have more than 500 employees that also meet um, the general scoping. Um, they'll have to start dealing with this next year. Um, and that also applies to non-EU companies that have securities listed on an EU regulated market that also have more than 500 employees and, and that part of that like large general scoping criteria. So there's a number of companies there that can be pulled in and then, you know, subsequent each year, there's more companies pulled in. So the next year is going to be kind of all the other companies that might be met that large scoping requirement that we walk through. So they would report on 2025 information in 2026. And then you've got your small and medium-sized entities that have listed securities. Um, so those will join in the next year. So 2026 information in 2027, although they have the option to actually opt out for two years um, if they choose to do that. And then the final wave of 
of reporting is actually going to be that I think the one that catches a lot of U.S. companies by surprise that maybe haven't been following this directive, um, which is the non-EU parent reporting. And so that will begin in 2028, that consolidated you know, U.S. parent, for example, reporting um, 2028 information um, reported on in 2029. All right. So we've covered who the standards apply to and, and the timeline. I think that's a good stopping point for today's episode. We want to leave everybody hanging um, where we will jump into on our next episode talking about the actual standards themselves. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.